I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. So um, thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm joined by Renia Delodge, who is the author of The Unmissable Truth Bomb, Why I'm No Longer Speaking to White People About Race. Um, it looks at structural racism, both historically in the workplace and also in progressive discourses such as feminism, um, which is a very interesting kind of um, aspect of the book. So I'm going to start with a short passage from um, Audrey's essay, The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action, which was actually delivered as a speech in 1977. Um, this is two months after she was told that she needed surgery for breast cancer. And after she was told this, she had three weeks to wait between being told and having surgery. Um, this was obviously a very long three weeks for her in which she says that she looked at her life with an urgent clarity. Um, and the speech is what she produced. Each of us is here now because in one way or another, we share a commitment to language and to the power of language and to the reclaiming of that language, which has been made to work against us. In the transformation of silence into language and action, it is vitally necessary for each one of us to establish or examine her function in that transformation and to recognize her role as vital within that transformation. For those of us who write, it is necessary to scrutinize not only the truth of what we speak, but the truth of that language by which we speak it. For others, it is to share and spread also those words that are meaningful to us, but primarily for us all, it is necessary to teach by living, and speaking those truths which we believe and know beyond understanding. Because in this way alone we can survive, by taking part in a process of life that is creative and continuing, that is growth. And it is never without fear of visibility, of the harsh light of scrutiny, and perhaps judgment of pain, of death. But we have lived through all of those already in silence except death. And I remind myself all the time now that if I were to have been born mute or had maintained an oath of silence my whole, long for my whole life long for safety, I would still have suffered and I would still die. It is very good for establishing perspective. So now I'm going to invite Rennie to read from her book, which I think responds to Audrey's enduring themes of speech and silencing and power and the transformation that can come from a liberatory transformation that can come from speaking. Amid every conversation about nice white people feeling silenced by a conversation about race, there's a sort of ironic and glaring lack of understanding or empathy for those of us who have been visibly marked out as different for our entire lives and live the consequences. It's truly a lifetime of self-censorship that people of colour have to live. 
The options are speak your truth and face the reprisal or bite your tongue and get ahead in life. It must be a strange life, always having permission to speak and feeling indignant when you're finally asked to listen. It stems from white people's never questioned entitlement, I suppose. I cannot continue to emotionally exhaust myself trying to get this message across, while also towing a very precarious line that tries not to implicate any one white person in their role of perpetuating structural racism, lest they character assassinate me. So I'm no longer talking to white people about race. I don't have a huge amount of power to change the way the world works, but I can set boundaries. I can halt the entitlement they feel towards me, and I'll start that by stopping the conversation. The balance is too far swung in their favour. Their intent is often not to listen or learn, but to exert their power, to prove me wrong, to emotionally drain me, and to rebalance the status quo. I'm not talking to white people about race unless I absolutely have to. If there's something like a media or conference appearance that means that someone might hear what I'm saying and feel less alone, then I'll participate. But I'm no longer dealing with people who don't want to hear it, wish to ridicule it, and frankly, don't deserve it. So there's so much in here and what it takes for a person of colour to speak about racism and to educate white people about racism within the context of a white supremacist world. Um, I guess we should begin with asking, you know, did Audrey help you in any way to find your voice and to break your silence? Yeah, I think so. I mean, but then also I think a lot of people can probably resonate because there was this point on the internet, like maybe four years ago, where like fragments of her essays were just like doing the rounds mm -hmm. <laughs> on Twitter and Tumblr and like all the social networks, um, in particular the master's tools, mm -hmm. um, but also other fragments of her essays, but never them in full um, for some reason. Um, probably to do with copyright reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I actually remember reading that fragment of the Master's Tools, which I think is probably one of the strongest parts of that essay, but also I think it's worth reading it in the entire context when she essentially talks about how, you know, white women are using the same tools as patriarchy in their feminism. Yeah, it affected me deeply, I think, because I think that every single woman of colour who has found herself in like a white dominated feminist space is going to be able to resonate with that essay at some point. They mm -hmm. may, may not happen initially at the beginning of their feminist journey, but at some point, after some element of organising or some, after some time has passed, they're going to be able to resonate with it. And I, I definitely did. Mm -hmm. I think there's, um, there's a lot about tools that we'll return to later, but um, you know it might be copyright reasons, but probably also the Twitter character limit, I guess. Yeah, which yeah. Is where there's also, lots of fragments. also Tumblr and mm -hmm. yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. And also just general like feminist websites and feminist blogs. A lot of like yeah. snippets of her 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 work with doing the rounds. But it's sort of like what I say in in my sort of like preface here is that you kind of do need to read those those snippets in context yeah, yeah like it's super powerful at that time mm -hmm. you know it was very powerful but you kind of do need to read yeah what it, what it all means in context and also what she she was facing at the time as well yeah completely like in a letter to mary daly she she asks you know do you actually read black women do you actually mm. read black feminism or are you just ripping bits out of context to illustrate your own purposes rather mm. than actually engaging with the struggle actually standing in solidarity um but speaking of twitter i mean we were speaking downstairs about how 
Um, the themes of speaking and silencing have been incredibly well all over the internet this week and the past week. And you know, Twitter is now just a website where we talk about violence all the time, <laughs> which is great fun. Um, and you know, the Me Too hashtag. I mean, well, there's a lot of really uh, helpful things about it. It's, it raises a lot of questions that we need to unpick, such as, for example. You know, what are the conditions in which people can speak? Why can some people disclose more than others? It also conceals the fact that some people have been saying that, you know, me too for a really long time, but no one was listening. So who do we listen to? And then when we hear these disclosures, I mean, what do we do about it? Um, as Audrey says, once you speak and um, you express something in language, how do you turn it into action? So how do we shift the burden of disclosure and living in this world from survivors, from the vulnerable, into to everyone else, because you know abuse and harassment are collective problems that are societal. Why is the prerogative always um, on survivors? Um, it's I guess that's a question of what I can do rather than what we can do. Mm. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean I think that there's a lot to sort of unpack. The question is, who are we saying me to to? I mean, the vast majority of women I know have now chimed in with that hashtag. And I, I guess the question is, like, are we doing it for each other or are we doing it to show men the prevalence? You mm -hmm. know, I'm, I'm not sure. I think, like, I participated in order to sort of, and, and a specific, on a specific platform to, and that was for people who follow me, you know. Mm -hmm. I, that, I feel like it was more of a solidarity thing rather than to show the men in my life this is how prevalent it is mm -hmm. there are lots of questions i think to be asked in terms of like what comes next after that yeah what do men do mm. um so i have a, a sheaf of quotations from audrey because obviously she's very quotable um and i think you know one of audrey's many identities as well as being a teacher a black lesbian a poet all of these things. She was also a mother. She identified as a mother. And um, there's an essay called Manchild in the collection in which she talks about her experiences raising her son. So she says, I wish to raise a black man who will recognize that the legitimate objects of his hostility are not women, but the particulars of a structure that programs him to fear and despise women as well as his own black self. For me, this task begins with teaching my son that I do not exist to do his feeling for him. Men who are afraid to feel must keep women around to do their feeling for them while dismissing us for the same supposedly inferior capacity to feel deeply. But in this way, also, men deny themselves their own essential humanity, becoming trapped in dependency and fear. So I think that this is really interesting in terms of the way that she's thinking about things as a whole rather than, you know, this is a woman's problem or a men's problem hmm. because, you know, gender, power relations are all interconnected. I mean, she cannot not be a mother to her son. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And it would be good to see more men kicking off that conversation. Mm -hmm. It would be really great if they could start yeah. doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm just yeah. not quite sure how, how much longer women can continue yeah. to do the heavy work on this. But this is what you say about um, white people as well. I mean, you know, how, how long does this have to be a conversation had by people of colour? Well, you know, what's quite interesting is that I think that like every time that these conversations happen amongst women, but in more like, in a broader ways, mm -hmm. and men tend to respond. Somebody was saying something very interesting. I can't remember who was saying this, but if I can remember, I will credit her. She was like, men who respond with their own vulnerability. So like, they're trying to have the conversation about masculinity. They need to like insert it into like people's disclosing their own sexual assaults. It's like, mm -hmm. well, I'm vulnerable too. Like, no one's not saying that you're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, and that's why sometimes I just feel like they need to get in a room and just have those conversations amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, that being said, you know, it is happening. It yeah. does happen sometimes. It does. I guess it's um, the whole thing about getting in a room. Claudia Rankine at the Tate a couple of weeks ago was saying that we need to learn how to have a conversation about race in the sa- and stay in the same room. She's saying that, you know, white people get defensive. <laughs> black people feel like, you know, they've been doing this for so long and are tired. And she says, interestingly, that Asian people, so in the American context, it's East Asian people of East Asian origin, I suppose that's what she's referencing, are trying to distance themselves from, from blackness, being like, oh, well, you know, why are black men so sexist or whatever? Mm. Um, so we do need to find a way, I suppose, of reaching out to each other and maybe admitting our vulnerability is one of the steps towards doing that because Mm. Audrey does talk a lot about um, self-revelation and about making yourself open and coming out and kind of meeting each other as people Mm. rather than people kind of encased in this like hierarchical definition of roles or whatever I'm rambling Um, (laughs) I was going to say something about you know that whole staying in a room thing Mm -hmm. because I I just think it's really interesting because like I think reading like the the manuscript of this book Mm -hmm. a few months back reading briefly mentioned the open letter to Mary Daly which is basically a essay in the book and she publishes this open letter after writing to this feminist who is white privately and then she gets no response for months so she just publishes it it like towards the end well, she's basically saying why have you tokenized black women in this this way etc etc and towards the end she's like at one point in my life I swore to myself that I would never speak to a white woman about racism again Ooh. and I was like oh yeah I definitely felt that <laughs> like, um, and I just thought it was really interesting because I think one of the criticisms that I get to my work usually from people who haven't read the book or don't understand like the logistics of publishing one is well how can you stop and it's like you do realize that like the function of publish of having the book published mm-hmm. and then going around speaking to people about it all the time is literally kickstarting the conversation mm-hmm. like i know it's a little irony <laughs> yeah. in the title is <laughs> me saying and some people get very upset they're like well how can you cut white people out of the conversation i'm like look it's not a post i'm like it's not if you look at the front the front cover it's not a poster like mm-hmm. you can actually there's quite some there's some pages behind it like yeah. if you want to know why yeah. like especially the word why yeah. suggests that you can actually i am actually attempting to start that conversation mm-hmm. and and i just find that response always so interesting mm-hmm. and it definitely speaks to that defensiveness that she often speaks to it again and again and again you know i get this criticism oh you're trying to silo people blah 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 like and i'm like I've just been here for like almost five months having this conversation and people yeah. talking at me all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and me talking at people. Yeah. Like, let's not pretend. I think the people who respond like that are most scared of having the mm-hmm. conversation. Terrified. Terrified yeah. of just flicking it through. And, you know, she sort of says it in some of her essays as well, like ter- terrified of what they might learn, yeah. <laughs> you know, or what they might know to be wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just think that's really interesting. Who runs mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. and who... Who sort of sticks by it? But there was lots of themes in the book about just total exasperation. I think mm-hmm. in in your silence will not protect you. Total exasperation. Yeah, I mean, I guess she also kind of thinks about it as as teaching, which is also what you do when you kickstart conversations and. Just a little biographical aside that Audrey, most of the um, what we call essays in this book where a lot of them were delivered as speeches um, and they span 1977 to 1982 and before that Audrey was actually a teacher. She taught at like an all right, all white police college. She taught at a black college in southern America, which was interesting for her coming as a New Yorker and she also didn't write prose until quite late on in her life. She started writing poetry 
because that's how she felt she could access and communicate the things that she was feeling and experiencing in the world. So when she started delivering these speeches, it was after she learned how to write prose. She said she learned how to write prose by teaching, teaching grammar and tenses are a way for her of ordering the chaos around time. And for her, she says that teaching was a survival technique, which is translated as the only way that real learning happens, because I myself was learning something that I needed to continue living. And I was examining it and teaching it at the same time that I was learning it. And she was teaching it and learning it as a black lesbian woman against a racist, sexist, homophobic education system, and at the same time learning how to survive in such a world. And I wondered if, you know, the fact that you're having these conversations, kickstarting these things, being accused of not talking to white people, but actually talking to white people, you know, what is the context here in which you're having to be put out there? And has it been emotionally draining? Has it been, you know, how has it been? Wow. <laughs> what a question. What a question. <laughs> I think uh, to what... Uh, really, it's a level of just... Uh, I'm feeling a lot of irritation a lot mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. time. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> um, and how's it been? Well, I'm actually writing about this because I'm, I'm going to write about it for the paperback that's coming out oh, next cool. year, March 8th, in case anybody wants to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, International Women's Day, right? Yes, so yeah. it'll be clashing with a lot of publication of lots of other women's books, probably more generic ones about white feminism. <laughs> um, <laughs> come on, that's what's published on International Women's Day, let's be real. How has it been for me? Uh-huh. It's been actually just kind of draining, you know, because I spent such a long time uh, attempting to try and have this conversation and being shut down by people who were very invested in it not, not happening. And that was a long time. That was, it's like seven years. It was like seven years of like from the germination of these thoughts to the publication of them. That actually after it was published, I was very much like, okay, that's done. <laughs> it's over now. No, it's not over, apparently. Well, I mean, I think that the, the fact that we're having these conversations about your experiences is not to, you know, say that you are the new Audrey Lord or anything, although that would be quite cool, but um, just to well, show, like, not. how these things haven't really gone yeah, away. Absolutely. It's like an you ongoing know, conversation. I know that I definitely found, like, a solace in her work and other black feminist works when my work wasn't being widely mm-hmm, read mm-hmm. because I was going through almost exactly the same things of finding myself in feminist spaces and the hostility mm-hmm. and just the outright sometimes just racism yeah not malicious racism but racism nonetheless projections yeah, stereotypes exactly. yeah. i think that and i just think that like a lot of women of color deeply relate to that mm-hmm. but she wasn't she also wasn't the first yeah she mm-hmm. also wasn't the first and yeah. you know i feel like i have joined into that great tradition and i certainly won't be the last mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because the dynamics are very yeah. slow to change, yeah, you know, yeah. so we have to continue to, people have to yeah. ki- continue to put their two cents in. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you know, the industry is like a fresh new voice and, you know, all of this stuff. And yeah, as you say, you're, you thought you were joining this great tradition, which you have. I mean, I'm still completely stoked about the fact that our edition has Rennie and Sarah Ahmed in this incredible triumvirate of um, powerful women. Um, but, you know, in response to what you're saying, like Audrey also says, when speaking with men and white women, I'm reminded of how difficult and time consuming it is to have to reinvent the pencil every time you want to send a message. I mean, why is it still so hard to talk to white people about race? You're, you're going to you have know. to ask them at this <laughs> yeah. point. Yeah, good point, good point. <laughs> um, so boundaries, you know, mm. um, how, you know, boundaries are helpful. Um, Audrey talks about boundaries as well. Yeah, you know, one of her phrases, I'm sure everyone is familiar with, self-care is warfare. Mm-hmm. Looking after myself is uh, not self-indulgence, it's um, warfare. But you'll be familiar with it anyway. And I feel like 
zeitgeisty that mm-hmm, phrase mm-hmm. and it's absolutely kicked started the whole movement yeah i think alongside just renewed <coughs> feeling and, and renewed necessity for activism mm-hmm. has come that phrase people reminding themselves not to burn out yeah completely it's so important um i mean it's it's one of the things that we get as part of her toolkit for survival um there's self-care there's also um you know, well i mean that phrase the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house which mm. gives us so many tools um first of all one of the tools is unlearning and what is useful there's essays called uses of anger uses of the erotic um what can we take and what can we discard and not put our energies into fighting she says for example also that you know black women have a wealth of tools and pain and this is from one of her poems how much of this truth can i bear to see and still live unblinded how much of this pain can i use and pain is also closely related to fear fear once you put your hand on it you can use it or push it away are these useful tools i think i think so yeah i think so yeah. Uh, and also sort of going back to that idea of boundaries as well. Mm-hmm. It's something that, that I've always been very hot on. I love a good boundary. Yeah, all about setting boundaries. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah. Which I think like now there's a, there's a real like direct tension between that and the work that I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Because I do think that there is some element of like service in, in being seen as a person who does thinking. You know, because then people want to corner you in a room and be like, think on demand. Like, and I'm like, please leave me alone. Like, <laughs> yeah. I really struggle with that. Yeah. And, uh, and then I think back to the ways in which I've done that to writers as well. And yeah. like, you know, has that been helpful? Has that been good? Has that, has that been actually about me just getting stuff from them? Has that actually been an act of objectification? Mm-hmm. Like, those are all the things that I'm thinking about now that I'm on the other side of it. Um, which is also very hard and difficult to discuss publicly because, you know, you want people to read your work and it, resonate with it and, and talk about it. But it's very hard to be a person who is now being asked account for this or speak on behalf of that or it's just very difficult I think and yeah yeah, these past few months have been a huge like affront to boundaries that I thought I was quite good at um doing like I I I felt like I was a person who was very good at like articulating my limits at every time but I think it's just um the fact of like maybe we we as humans have not become very Mass communication is a thing that we recognise mm-hmm. intellectually, but in terms of understanding what that means emotionally, we're not very good at it. So I feel like a lot of people responded to my work as though I had written them a personal letter mm-hmm. and I was getting a lot of personal letters back and I was like, please, there's hundreds of personal letters. Like, it's not possible mm-hmm. for me to, um, to respond. That was very, like, overwhelming for me, I think. And now I'm trying to, like, tap into the idea of... of Audrey's self-care because I was very much I felt very disconnected from it mm-hmm. I was very good at it for a while and then I felt very disconnected mm-hmm. from it and I think that we all can when our when our work you know if we very much believe in our work and we think that we're doing a good thing like if it's taking so much from us that um you stop to look after stop looking mm-hmm. after yourself and I actually changed this text on my website where I was like look I can't actually do all the things that you're asking me to do mm-hmm. I didn't say it in these terms but I was like if I want to actually do the work that I like doing and you like reading, like, mm-hmm. I can't be at all the things. So, like, please give me some respite in that. Mm-hmm. And then I know that's a very, like, specific and situation to me and also a bit of, like, a humble brag, woe is me. Oh, people like mm-hmm. reading my work. Boo-hoo. <laughs> now they want to see me speak. Oh, sad, sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that there's, a, there's actually 
you know, that's what I read now in her self-care is warfare sort Ooh. of quote. And I think that those of us doing work that we consider to be worthwhile and part of attempting to change the world, whether that be paid or unpaid, also need to sort of check in with that quote. Because yeah. there's that other phrase, you can't pour from an empty cup. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You can't, if you're going to go to your desk or if you're going to go to your work every day and attempt to continue to do good things and change things, you need to be doing it with the best version of yourself. And that also means scheduling in rest time. And mm-hmm. actually, I think that many people are very bad at that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, for a start, I don't think that you're being a humble bragging or whatever. I mean, like Angela Davis and Claudia Rankine, they spoke in London this year and last year. And people who were asking questions were very much like, what do we do? Mm. And they're just like, I don't know. I mean, like, wander around and keep doing what you're doing. Mm. I don't have the answers. I mean, how can I possibly tell you? Mm. I've said what I have to say, for example, like, listen to people on the margins because they can tell you actually a lot about what's between the margins and the center. You know, they've said what they have to say. Mm. Um, but this whole thing about going inwards and self care is so, so, so important. Um, it's about like taking responsibility mm-hmm. for ourselves, actually. You yeah. Know? I think that, like, there's so much to take from this book in terms of tools mm-hmm. and how to apply it to your own practice of, of whatever you're trying to do, which is hopefully, yeah. you know, anti-racist feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I feel like the last thing I want to do when reading this is, I mean, she's since passed, but if Audrey was still alive, I, I feel it wouldn't be appropriate to go to her, well, what, what do I do next, Audrey? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like she's given us the tools to go and do that. We, yeah. we do have to take responsibility yeah. for our role in this you Mm -hmm, know and mm -hmm. I think that a lot of this conversation about anti-racism at the moment our responsibility our role there's there's a lot of discussion about complicity and I just think like the next part of like understanding Mm -hmm. what complicity means is okay like how can I not be complicit how Mm -hmm. can I do that like what do I have to bring to the table um I'm I'm gonna share an anecdote Mm -hmm. which I haven't shared publicly yet um in terms of like this weird thing where like like this weird like it's almost like outsourcing of the thinking you know mm-hmm. people who are already doing the thinking you know and it can go in all sorts of different ways but this weekend um i was doing a festival in, in ilkley in yorkshire and um this man at the end put his hand up and he was asked this like really like facetious question about well actually I think that what you're saying is now the orthodox. It is the doctrine, and everyone's having to do sure, Jan. Un- <laughs> unconscious bias training <laughs> yeah. of work, and like we we're all being forced to believe that we live in a structural racist society now. And if you speak out against this, you're penalised. And I was like, okay, if that's the case, and like, yeah. why is my book like one of few that's been published mm-hmm. in the last thirty years? It's at the orthodoxy. It's at the freaking doctrine, like. <laughs> I went to the um, Soul of a Nation exhibition at the Tate Modern today, and like at the end of the exhibition, there's a bunch of books on sale, like three, four bookshelves full of books, including mine. And out of all of those books from like black authors, only four are alive, and I'm one of them. Meaning that if we all get in the same car, <laughs> you know, like that's it. That's your contemporary black book yeah. gone. You know, like yeah, it's very different. Like, well, I mean that's. But, what? I mean, well, what he did, right? Sorry to speak. Ooh, that's okay. Yeah. It's like it's afterwards. He basically like followed me around and kept like firing questions at me, and I was like, boundaries, man. Yeah, like, go away. Boundaries, yeah. like, and I think that we have to know our own limits, and also trust that everybody recognizes their own limits, mm-hmm. and and work from that space yeah. in terms of like our organizing and anti-racist feminism in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, I think that this anecdote perfectly illustrates the fact that, first of all, there's um, enough of you to fit in a car, and then if that car blows up or falls off a cliff, then bye. Um, as in, there's, there's fewer voices of color who are speaking about these things, full stop. So the people who are visible get scrutinized much more harshly. But then also, um, some people's boundaries, some people's boundaries are respected more than others. So you will be asked to do more and to give out more probably than other people, of which, you know, like there's loads of like white writers around writing about, I don't know, time or something. Mm. <laughs> so it's kind of different. You're performing a different kind of function. You are, you know, speaking truth to power from a much more marginalized situation. And I think that's why it's even more important that you do, you know, put up these protective boundaries from um, living in, surviving in the mouth of a dragon, to paraphrase Audrey. I mean, mm. we are not living in a context of like a level playing field at all. Absolutely. So. I think it's something, but also like beyond my particular context, I think it's something that we definitely really owe each other in terms mm -hmm. of this work, yeah. like whatever the work may be. Some, for some people, they may not even feel like what they're doing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's the work, but I even feel like just being here tonight and discussing Audrey's work, work is mm -hmm. part of the, the work, you know? Yeah. This is one of this is an evening of yours, you know, <laughs> where you could be at home resting, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And and you're here, and we need to find a way not to overstretch it ourselves. And I, I think one thing that I sort of realised a while back was that, you know, there's actually always somebody to pass the baton on to. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. like if you don't do it, yeah. the world isn't going to cave mm -hmm. in. Yeah, and that it's actually quite important to have like your community and yeah, like know absolutely. know the people who if you if you can't do it, whether that be typing up the newsletter yeah. or, or whatever that, that somebody else can because it's just impossible yeah, for, for people to do this alone, yeah. like to do this work alone. Yeah, yeah. Find your people. I mean, Audrey also teaches us um, to that it's okay to ask for help mm. um, and to share the burden of things. She, I mean, she teaches us about healing and I think that's kind of partly why her work speaks so much to my friends and I who, um, you know, in, if really it was women of colour who brought Audrey into the public consciousness in this country, I think. I mean, mm. Jackie Kay did a lot um, because she was friends with her back in the 80s. Find your people, ask for help, listen to yourself and mm. listen to your intuition. And for Audrey, there's a lot about actually non-rationality in the book. She uses, for example, the I Ching as a structuring method for Eye to Eye, which is the final essay in the collection before we move on to the poetry. Um, and for her, this whole thing about listening to your feelings and like paying attention to, to your intuition is a political act of self-care. Mm. Because for a start, I mean, this academized empiricism and rationalism that dominates uh, intellectual and cultural discourse, she relates to being a very westernized uh, European um, method of thinking. And it 
obscures how you feel and your feelings help you survive. She kind of says that we need to, yeah, we should take seriously our feelings against this, uh, which is an ancient non-European consciousness of living as a situation to be experienced and interacted with so that we learn more and more to cherish our feelings and to respect those hidden sources of a power from where true knowledge and therefore lasting action comes. Mm. That's in uses with the erotic, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which isn't actually about sex. No, it's not about sex. And actually, funnily enough, um, uses of the erotic was an essay that I kind of like, for some reason, didn't really want to like when the first time that I read Audrey or the first few times that I read Audrey, I think like you, um, I read it much more in terms of overt discussion about racism, about sexism, about structures, and then proofreading this book Book, um, over the spring so many times all the stuff about feelings and intuition really really spoke to me mm. um, yeah I kind of wondered actually like why why that might have been I mean maybe well, it's I was unlearning my own ways of trying to deny my feelings and well I think that like it resonated with me as well I just read it again today uh-huh. you know she locates the erotic which is basically the opposite of westernized rationality basically even though she doesn't make that binary that's just my interpretation oh she does oh does she okay that's Mm -hmm. good um she's basically saying what do you want like what do you actually want out of life rather than what does rather than everybody else telling you what you want out of life Mm -hmm. you know like every time we've all heard a parent or a grandparent be like all i want is my child or grandkids to you know find the love of their life (laughs) get married and have a house and blah 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 and it's like that's like the external measure of like what everybody wants and so please everyone work towards those things as much as possible like oh I, uh, my grandma said to me you know but when when are you going to have children blah 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 like this weird external measure and mm-hmm. i'm like just i'm like grandma i literally just yeah. did the thing i want like yeah, yeah, which yeah. is published a book that's basically all i've wanted to do for the last 10 years mm-hmm. and she, <laughs> but she doesn't recognize that that was an eternal thing that i really wanted yeah so she's still got like this weird ex- external measure and i thought that i don't think that audrey uh, explicitly says those milestones but she also says it from the perspective of somebody who like reached those milestones mm-hmm. fairly young yeah and wasn't happy like yeah. she married a man yeah, and exactly. she had the kids with the yeah. man and then she left the man dump you know. the man yeah, yeah exactly like <laughs> hashtag dump him yeah. yeah but but i think there's there's a lot to to pull from that mm-hmm. you know like what do you actually want and that's what i took reading that essay today which is nobody actually thinks about what they want we think a lot about what other people yeah. might think of us or and what did you think when you were rereading it? Well, I mean, I thought basically exactly the same things. It's really hard to define what you want. And I think that's one of the enduring questions of feminism that, you know... Like, what do we collectively want? What is want? Femin- feminine desire? Yeah, yeah, what do we want? I mean, it could be Because, partly, you know, I yeah. think... In, sorry to speak over No, it's OK. Again, that's fine. Just all the ideas yeah. are coming to me now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, in feminism, we define a lot of what we are against for obvious reasons. Yes. But in terms of, like, what we want... yeah. yeah. Well, um, this is a very good point for me to read my final quote from Audrey before we move on to questions because, yes, Audrey is really a former feminist self-help um, and for her, like what she says that we should want is basically the best. Um, she says, it is never easy to demand the most from ourselves, from our lives, from our work. To encourage excellence is to go beyond the encouraged mediocrity of our society, but giving in to the fear of feeling and working to capacity is a luxury only the unintentional can afford. And the unintentional are those who do not wish to guide their own destinies. So, excellence. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we should not settle, basically. Yeah, we shouldn't <laughs> yeah. settle. And I think that that's something very pertinent, I think. Mm-hmm. I often think to myself that, like, 
young-ish women, like, I sold this thing where it's like, you can go after whatever you want until your late 20s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 30s. Yeah. And yeah. then it's like, and then you reach that point, people are like, okay, but why haven't you done these external things? Like, yeah. where's the man? <laughs> like, what's going on? Like, even if you're gay, they're like, where's the man? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so it's like, you, you can go after exactly what yeah. you want, which often it's like in a very like narrow co- career mm-hmm, perspective. Mm-hmm. We're very much denied that. And if, if you're not thinking about what you want, you're thinking about, well, everybody else's needs around you. And yeah, exactly. It, it sucks to say that. It sucks that that's still the case for so many women, that we're supposed to be more in tune with the needs of other people around us than yeah. our own needs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, emotional labour. I just hear so many tales of, like, women who, have, like, as soon as their children turned 18, they, like, immediately divorced their husbands and, like, went off to go and find what they actually mm-hmm. want, yeah. you know, like... And I, I, maybe I'm casting a very, like, pessimistic view on, mm-hmm. on this, but, I mean, I feel like that's what she's saying in that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that essay. And the key to that question, what do you want, is that it's really going to be different for everyone. Yeah. Right? And that's why it makes it such a difficult question to answer, which is why I feel like external society is just, like, imposing on us, you know, these are actually the milestones that everybody should achieve for happiness, even mm-hmm, though mm-hmm. We, we've seen time and time again that they don't work. Which is why everyone should read Audrey, because she supplies you with the tools. To She encourages you to scrutinise those things which are difficult to sit with, like pain and fear and mm-hmm. just fear of visibility and, and big structural things as well. And she encourages you to actually take those seriously and, mm-hmm. yeah, to define what you want. I think that maybe it's time for questions, unless you want to chat more about, you know, what I you want. I think questions are Yeah, you want questions? Time. Okay. Yeah, good oh. <laughs> Excellent. When he talked about the motive of the car and, like, the four or five black people being in that one car, what would happen if they crashed? I think Sarah made reference to fewer people of colour speaking or writing, and I just wanted to clarify mm-hmm. if that's what she actually said. Um, I don't think that fewer people of colour are speaking or writing. I think that um, people of colour are working to be published and heard in an industry and a media culture in which you know people of colour are very very marginalised. Um, you know this is a question not of only what is being published, the content, but it's also problems within the industry where you know publishing is something crazy like ninety something percent white or something. Um, so that is what I meant. I just wanted to find out a little bit more about how Silver Press decided to publish Audrey Lord. I mean, as you said, we're all huge fans of her. I'm sure everyone in the room is. And I just wanted to know a little bit more about the story behind <laughs> Silver Press getting that. It was it was just a bit like a dream, really. Um, we had a wish list um, that we drew up, which included Leonora Carrington, who is our first author. Um, it just so happened that, you know, basically I was on holiday in Greece, I was talking to my friend Angelica about how cool it would be if we could set up like a feminist horizontalist publisher. There was lots of other things going on as well, like Alistair and I had been working on finding a form for our kind of energy and um, our kind of interests that were not, there wasn't a form for it pre-existing. So we were looking to work together collectively in some way. Um, and so in August, I said, OK, we should publish our first book in April. Then it just so happened that um, the centenary of Carrington's birth was April the 6th. So that was delightful, you know, perfect. And then somehow it turned out that, yeah, no one else had thought to publish Audrey before. But I'm going to go back on that. We, we thought that we were the first British publisher, but that's uh, a mistake. Audrey was actually published by Sheba. It was Zami, I think. Oh, hello, lovely to see you, and thank you so much for coming. Maybe you can tell us about, um, did you publish Zami? Oh, awesome. Oh, wow. Zami has a Sonia Boyce cover. Uh Uh-huh. And my name is Sue O'Sullivan, and (laughs) 
and we published the Cancer Journals, and we uh, we published two books of poetry, yeah. and another book. So. Um, when I saw that you were publishing it, I was terribly excited yeah. because it feels really important yeah. and that Audrey's work is still so relevant. Yeah. But I also thought, hey, yeah. I, I also think yeah. that the 80s, mm -hmm. which is when we published these books, with a, from a small publisher mm -hmm. with a, 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 and a very self-consciously mixed-race collective mm -hmm. which had the rule that there would never be more white women on the collective than black women. Mm -hmm. So our politics were already sort of hopefully on the line, yeah. although I'm sure we fucked yeah. up. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, uh, there, the 80s, it wasn't only Audrey. There mm -hmm. were British black feminists who yeah. were published. There were collections like Charting the Journey. There were a whole number of women who were doing exciting things. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Some of them black women in tandem with gay black men as well, trying to set up things like the Black um, Lesbian and Gay Center yeah. and so forth. So yeah. anyway, I'm, yeah. I'm really excited that there's a new copy of her work. It, it is relevant. It is fabulous. but. History's great too. Yeah. Thank you so much about being gracious about our mistake. It was honestly, um, but um, you know, ours is, I think that we're correct in saying that it is the first edition to bring the poetry and the prose together, and that's um, quite illuminating when you read them together. But yeah, I mean, basically, we just inquired about the rights, and it turned out that they were available because I guess other publishers hadn't really thought of it. But I mean, you know, my friends and I had all been reading this. Uh, green edition of Sister Outsider, which is um, slightly less attractive than our pink one. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, it's, it's a great book. And we have most of the essays from that. And um, yeah, that's just kind of how it happened. It was just um, a dream to publish someone who I'd been reading um, in an American edition for a really long time. Um, and actually, the thing about your British editions, um, this is really interesting to hear you talk about this history that was not visible for us, because one of the reasons why we wanted to invite Rennie to preface the book is because there is a bit of a gap between you know, um, American black feminism and British black feminism, and I think that you might have felt that there was <coughs> too much Americanism. Yeah, I think so. But then also, I kind of feel like in that sort of like very... Oh, I don't know what the word to use is. There was a wave. There was a wave of feminism mm -hmm. recently in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree. Um, is it maybe the fourth? I don't know. The 17th yeah. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in that wave, there was a lot, like every single black feminist thinker that women were reaching to were American, mm -hmm. you know? And to my failure, I wasn't critical of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I immediately was like, you know, I feel such resonant. I feel such resonance with these words that I don't need to go away and actually find out who's actually who was saying almost exactly the same things in Britain. Yeah. And I think that there's two halves of the failure. There was a half of me, like in my basically mid-twenties, not doing the research. And then there was the half of like, why was this not as accessible? And why where were those institutions? that had pres preserved that work in the same way that black American um, women's work was being preserved. And, and was it that they had been decimated by funding cuts? Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think about a lot because places that I did want to get in contact with and they had just shut down because they, they didn't have any access to funding anymore. And 
and and and then I thought a little bit about how those those cuts had cut memories out of the picture as well. Yeah. So I mean, there's a lot to think about there, a lot to rest on. Yeah. And I think the conclusion I came to was, don't be lazy and rely on the mm -hmm. internet. I mean, we are going to go for more questions, but I just wanted to um, ask you about, there was an exhibition which you reviewed for The New Humanist um, about the um, Bogle Louverture bookshop. Oh, no, I don't think that was Oh, me. no, that was Lola, sorry. Yeah. Um, okay, questions. <laughs> Anyone else? Two questions, if I can, or just pick the one that you think is more interesting. Uh, one is that um, one of the things that I really find compelling about uh, Audrey's writing is around sort of intersectionality and the implications that can have a kind of solidarity. And I was just wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that and or share any thoughts on where you think the most interesting, because there's obviously so much discussion of those topics right now, but what do you think are the most interesting, constructive lines of thinking about that or acting on that? That would be one question. And then the other Obviously, in her writing, and also, I haven't read your book, I will, and I'll buy it. <laughs> no, there's no um, pressure, seriously. But there's that sort of critical, <laughs> uh, critical reflection on, like, perhaps mainstream or white feminism or other institutions and structures of power. I'm wondering, like, is it that right now, like, well, I should just read your book, but, and it's not just about your book, by the way, but the question is, like, around alongside critical engagement, how are there interesting strategies to use those kind of structures like power structures or the kind of mainstream feminism or outside of feminism even like other structures to kind of progress the things that you think are important and the background to that is that i work in an ngo so i'm kind of like ngo industrial complex you know and we're we uh, we're supporting some pretty interesting radical feminist networks and groups but we are a more like you could say mainstream kind of institution and it's pretty interesting to see that uh, the tensions and dilemmas and trade-offs that play out there and so it'd just be interesting to hear your thoughts on so subverting institutions and constructive what was the first question um i think it was about what are the most productive lines of inquiry that emerge from um intersectionality discourse oh um I think that like, Audrey has very interesting things to say about this. Uh, one of the things that she says is, um, like she has this essay called The Useless of Anger. I'm just going to pull out a bit that I really liked. I'm going to read it out to you. Basically, she talks about like, the ways that white women respond when being challenged by black women. It, for it is not the anger of black women which is drooping down over this globe like a diseased liquid. It's not my anger that launches rockets, spends more than $60,000 on a, sec a second on missiles and other agents of war and death, slaughters children in cities, stockpiles nerve gas and chemical bombs, sodomizes our daughters and our earth. It's not the anger of black women which corrodes into blind dehumanizing power, bent upon the annihilation of us all unless we meet it with what we have, our power to examine and to redefine the terms on which we, we will live and work, our power to envision and re to reconstruct, anger by painful anger, stone upon heavy stone, a future of pollinating difference and the earth to support our choices. In that essay, she, she talks about like how white women sort of like fear and anger and like ter terrified like response to being challenged by black women on race in particular. She says it basically like eclipse that she's like, yo, black women aren't raping you. <laughs> like <laughs> she basically says that like, we're not stopping you. We're not imposing a curfew on you. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, 
like, and she talks about like the difference between anger and hatred, but like how that that fear from the person being challenged is the mm-hmm. same. And she says like the hatred is is the dynamics and the forces that um, are creating a situation where you're in a situation where you can't leave the house after 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. Like black women aren't creating that situation for you. So why are you responding to our challenge yeah. in that way? And I and I think that that's I just thought that was a great like way to situate that conflict because I think that sometimes if you are in the more privileged position and Mm -hmm. you're being challenged like the the response is is that of somebody who's who is the an actual threat Mm -hmm. but just she was like black women are far less of a threat to your life just listen to their criticism I mean (laughs) white women here are like basically scared of being called racist because their fear is kind of racist. It's like a projection, Mm. um, which is historical of black women as being other, dehumanized, animalistic, whatever. Um, And black women are literally scared of being killed and having their children killed on the streets. Like there's a lot of poetry about this. Which is what she says in that, in this book. And she draws on many, many like um, contemporary at the time examples Mm -hmm. of those exact things happening. Yeah, exactly. So basically own it. (laughs) Yeah, or just like in that, I think like what I took from that was in that moment of perhaps shame and fear and mm-hmm. anger, just sort of recognise the dynamics of the situation yeah. and that it's not actually, just like, it's not actually black women who are making you vulnerable yeah. <laughs> in, this, in the world. But the, she, she basically says the force of anger with which you come back on black women is, mm-hmm. is like it is, you yeah. know, like they're not the women, they're not the ones doing domestic violence to you. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even go into shame Mm. and internalised racism and also the relationships between black women, which is what eye to eye is all about. Mm. Um, but maybe someone will ask a question about that. Anyone else? Um, I just had a question about the poetry in the book. I haven't read the book yet, actually, but um, I know that she wrote poetry before she wrote prose. Um, and I just wondered how you selected the poems that you did and mm-hmm. um, if there's a correlation between the prose that you've selected and the poetry. Yeah, um, that's. Uh, I'm really glad you asked that question, actually, because... Um, We chose the poetry um, by going through the prose that we selected, which is most of the pieces from Sister Outsider. um, And we basically noted every time she referenced a poem or quoted from a poem, because she does that um, a fair bit, especially in her interview with Adrian Rich, um, which is super interesting because, you know, it's two poets talking to each other about why they write poetry and all this stuff. So a lot of it's from there, but it's scattered throughout the book. And we chose to basically include the poetry as a kind of appendix almost, but appendix makes it sound like it's less important. It's really not. They are two halves of the same apple. So that was the kind of rationale and logic behind it because we also were, you know, quite aware of the fact that none of us involved in silver are black women and we didn't want to let any kind of, I don't know, unconscious biases or whatever um, impact our our choosing of the poetry. We did include, um, I think it was three poems that aren't referenced in the book, but they're just stunning in how resonant they are today. Um, It's largely about kind of police violence and about black bodies being appropriated and brutalized. Um, So we felt we couldn't not include them. Just following on from Sue O'Sullivan, Uh Um, I remember um, Silver Moon, the bookshop, yeah. and I remember Centerprise, and, mm-hmm. and it seems to me that there'd be a, a third book possibly, or be some anthology yeah. that documents or put on record yeah. the writing of British-based black mm-hmm. women at that time, yeah. because you're right, that's been lost, as a lot of things mm-hmm. from the 80s have been lost. Yeah. So, you know, people, um, young people or younger people than myself, yeah. who do lots of visual arts, yeah. with no reference to the Black Art yeah. Gallery yeah, yeah. that was the first black 
gallery in you know certainly in London if not the mm -hmm. country so all those things have been lost and you are right it is yeah. about the cuts to funding because I worked in the voluntary sector mm -hmm. and when the GLC went and all that blah blah, blah. so a lot of things have you know they're not archived they've mm -hmm. just gone yeah and something that you know a book that captures some of that stuff would yeah. be excellent I think yeah well I mean it's so great that you say that because um I'm really interested in Silver Moon and recently um a friend of ours um sent I think she posted on Facebook or you know she sent it to me anyway it's a poem by Jackie Kay who was also a friend of Audrey's called Silver Moon and it's in her collection Bantam, which has just come out from Picador. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a whole history there that we'd like to uncover and to explore more. And it, it does seem to me that um, actually this whole period of the 80s um, in kind of black liberation and black feminism seems to be being mined much more effectively by the art world. Have you been to that South London Gallery exhibition? Yeah, it was yeah. amazing. Yeah. I know a lot of the artists. It's just yeah. amazing to see me Gavin Janshin. Yeah. And all those people and Sonia Boyce that yeah. you know, you know you, to be honest, they, they, I knew their work at that time because I was involved in the background mm -hmm. gallery and a lot of their work was exhibited there yeah. for the first time. So it's like it was going back 30 years, like gold. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So publishing needs to basically catch up. Yeah. Whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. She knew about us. Yeah. She knew. Um, you know, women who were working on the collective. And I think, I hope, she trusted us yeah. and had personal friendships like with Jackie yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on. Yeah. But, you know, isn't it interesting mm -hmm. that none of the other um, feminist or women's publishers, yeah. let yeah, alone yeah. any others, chose to publish her? So, yeah. oh, actually, she forgot her. <laughs> so could you, do you know anything, do you know much about Kitchen Table Press? Because Audrey was also a publisher, yeah, so... Yeah. My, my sister-in-law was sort of flirted around the edges of that many, many years mm -hmm. ago. So we at Sheba were in contact with that. And I had actually read the cancer journals before I'd read anything else of Audrey's. And I was working on Spare Ribs, so mm -hmm. I thought, we've got to publish the can some yeah. uh, excerpts from the cancer journals yeah. in spare rib. So in fact, we did that, yeah. and then went on to publish. You know, we were publishing the whole book yeah. at Sheba. Well, so I that mean, that's was, wonderful. I mean, that this was exciting. But let me just add Ooh. something else in, which maybe you think of. There was a real level of kind of Audrey worship. <laughs> I mean, you know, that was going on when she would visit. And the, the main questions from white women were, what can we do? What can yeah. we do? We've heard and, that one before. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, that her answers were at, at once both tough and generous. Mm -hmm. Because she said what you said, you know, you know do, your, do your own thing. Mm -hmm. you know, you've got to discover your own political way. But then also her... Her generosity shone through as well. It was not like a put down. It was more like a sort of slight exasperation, but also you can do it. Mm -hmm. So there yeah. was a generosity there. So the one, one lesson everybody wants to go away from today is that you can do it. Trust yourself. It's yeah, funny. Trust that, yourself. It's, yeah. it's literally one of the things I sort of said in this like extra content for my paperback. Mm -hmm. I basically just went through like everything that everyone had written to me. And like in in like a lot of those basically letters, so all sorts of people from all sorts of different races was like this also like kind of like insecurity of like not trusting themselves to be able to effectively challenge yeah. it. Which so it's like easier to find an external person. In this case, it was me. 
can you please validate my actions? And all I want to say is like, you're doing good. Yeah. You are literally, you are absolutely doing a fantastic yeah. job. And I think to round up, uh, a nice thing to say was that after a while, like, I did so many like interviews around my book that in response to the what can we do question, I started to use this book and like Silver Press as yeah. an example. Like, look, here's people doing some work that is mm -hmm. very explicitly anti-racist and they're like getting together their skills and their resources and like what funds they have to do some good work. Yeah. And I and like one of the things I would always tell people is like, I don't know your skills, I don't know your networks, I don't know what you're good at. You know what you're good at. And um, so only you can go ahead and do that. And mm -hmm. I would always use the book as an example. Yeah. As like, see, here's, here's three people who thought, oh, we, we can probably just do that. And and I think that that's something important to mm -hmm. sort of remember that I think that like we kind of live in a society that encourages us to be passive about about the things that we want to change. Mm -hmm. And I think we should just go ahead and get on with it. That's an now. incredibly kind and generous note to end on. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.